Uh, well, good morning. As this guy said, my name is Ashley. Um, he's my husband. I am on staff here. Um, my official title is the pastor of operations, which is like a really fancy way to say that I keep track of all the details here. Um, I've been on staff for a couple of years. I have four kids, four of them. Um, I have to count them constantly. Um, but I love being in ministry here. I love being on staff here. It's really been a great experience. I've learned a lot about ministry, and I've learned a lot about office administration, and I've learned a lot about myself. And one of the things that I learned about myself is that I am absolutely terrible at describing people, like the absolute worst. And being in ministry is very relational. We meet a lot of new people. And so it's kind of hard to keep track of who's who sometimes. And so we're often describing what people look like. And I'm telling you, if somebody robbed a bank in front of me, I would not be able to report it to the police because I would never be able to describe them. Um, so that's what I've learned a lot about myself, but I've also learned a lot about Pastor Mike. Um, and let me just say that I'm honored to be on Pastor Mike's staff. I love working under him. It is fabulous. But he does this thing that I'm catching on to where he gets this big idea, and then he wants the staff to kind of carry it out. But before we can carry it out, he goes on a trip. So, for example... <laughs> For example, the bagel room, a couple years ago we decided we need to make space for the bagels and the hospitality and fellowship, and so we decided to clear out that space and make it a bagel room, but before it was a bagel room, it was a prayer room, and before it was a prayer room, it was Mike's office, but when it became the prayer room, it never got completely cleaned out of being Mike's office, and so Mike goes on a trip, and sure enough, it's time to clean out this bagel room, and I'm like, he totally did this on purpose. He went on a trip on purpose because I'm cleaning out all of his stuff. And I realized that he did it to me again because when he asked me to speak this morning, I was like, yeah, I can, I can do that. And then I look at the passage and I realize it's on money. And I'm like, awesome. I bet 1% of you woke up this morning and thought, gee, I just hope they talk about money this morning. <laughs> so I'm catching on to you. Um, but in all seriousness, I really am glad to be here this morning and get the opportunity to share. Um, I really believe that God wants to speak to us this morning. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that you meet us where we're at, that you speak to us in the language that we can hear. And so, Father, I ask that your voice would be heard this morning, that you would use my words, that they would come straight from you. We thank you that you are in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. So money. What is money? I did what a good researcher would do. I Googled it. I Googled what money is. <laughs> and here's what came up. Money is assets, property, resources owned by someone. It's a form of exchange. It's a faith-based system, meaning that the coins and the paper themselves don't have any money other than what we've assigned to them. We have faith that our money has value. Money is what we get paid with from our jobs. We give it as gifts. It's what we use to buy the necessities of life, food, clothing, diapers. Um, it's all something that we need. We all need this form of exchange, and hopefully we have at least a little bit of it. So what if I were to tell you that right now, taped under one of these chairs is a $50 bill? Wow, none of you are looking. I would so be out there searching every single one of these chairs, and I would be really mad if the guy next to me got that $50 bill and I didn't. So money makes you feel something. We all have this idea about what money is. Um, as I prepared for this sermon, I listened to a few messages on, on money. And one of the messages that I listened to on money, um, this pastor talked about how we all have a story with money. We all have our first idea about what money is. And so I really thought about, for me, what, 
what was my first experience with money? What was my idea of money? And I thought back to a time when my mom asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I told her that I wanted to be a singer and dancer for a long time, but that clearly didn't pan out. Um, so I told her I wanted to be a gas station attendant. And I am not knocking gas station attendants by any means, um, but it's typically not a career goal of a six or seven year old. Um, but I had seen the guys with their big wads of cash and I'm like, that is gonna be me. Like, I'm gonna go home every single night with that money, that money's gonna be mine. And then the other thing I thought about was, do you guys remember that show DuckTales? Maybe some of you do, but in the opening theme song of this show, which it's about Huey, Dewey, and Louie who live with their super rich uncle, um, their uncle is so rich that he's got this room full of gold coins, and he's so rich that he has on his bathing suit, and he dives in and surfs on the money. So I'm like, that's going to be me. I'll take the room of gold, the wad of cash, either one. Either way, that's going to be me one day. So we're in the middle of this series on the Sermon of the Mount, and we're going through the different gospel accounts um, and looking at what Jesus had to say to his people then and what he has to say to us today. So today we're looking at Matthew's account in Matthew 6, 19 through 34. I'm not going to have you read it with me because I'm afraid you'll mess me up. Um, so I will read it this morning. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For he, either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour, of, hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the, the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not so much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. To give a little context of this passage, the book of Matthew is largely about understanding Jesus as king and his followers as his subjects. So at this point in Jesus' life, he's already been baptized, he's already been tempted, he's already called the disciples, and he's already started his ministry. So this large crowd kind of begins to follow him. And in order to address them, he climbs up to a mountain. Totally not something I would do, but he climbs up a mountain and he begins to speak to the people. I read this book called Jesus Is by Judah Smith, and he uses the Sermon on the Mount as evidence to say that Jesus is the point. The religious leaders at the time were holding up this standard of living. They were taking the laws of Moses and they were using, themselves, using it to make themselves look really good, to say that they were better than others. So Jesus is trying to give this true description of what subjects of the true king look like. 
This is seen in the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are then followed by a series of passages about what true righteousness looks like. So the Pharisees are using these laws to make themselves look good. And Jesus is trying to give this picture of what true goodness looks like. And to be honest, he kind of makes things a little bit more complicated because now instead of just saying, do not murder, you have to think about the times where you've gotten angry or you've hated people as murder. So this new picture of righteousness is much harder to hack. But this is the point. The point is to say that your righteousness, my righteousness, is not good enough. It's never going to measure up, which is why we need Jesus. Jesus is the point. Understanding that, I believe, is key to understanding the passage we're looking at this morning. Because the religious leaders were using their righteousness and their goodness not only to bring them to God, they were thinking that their righteousness and their goodness would bring them financial well-being. It's this idea that if I'm good enough, if I work hard enough, if I do enough, I will have enough. I just need to keep on working, keep on storing up my earnings. I need to keep my eyes on the prize. But it is this fact that is in stark contrast to what Jesus is communicating. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus says, look, it's not okay that you're stockpiling your wealth on this earth. The language he uses is very direct. It's not like, you guys might want to think about not doing this. It is, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy. The original word for rust um, is this idea of an eating away. So Jesus is really trying to paint this picture of you're storing up things that will literally be eaten away. They will be destroyed. They will not last. They will fade. So he's telling the people, stop being obsessed with success. Stop trying, stop staying up all night thinking about your next big move. Stop trying to be enough to get enough. We should not be storing up treasures that will not last. Jesus wants us to store up treasures that are eternal. He's talking about making true investments with our time, with our gifts, and with our money, meaning being radically generous. It's more than just this idea of tithing a 10%. It's this constant pattern and outlook about the treasures of heaven. Jesus wants us to be consumed with the things of heaven. I think it's important to stop here for a minute and just clarify that Jesus is certainly not saying that he doesn't want you to have money or that he wants you to be poor. So what is he trying to say to us? Well, he's trying to draw a point that the kingdom of heaven, being true subjects of the king, is not about a dollar amount. It's about an outlook. It's an attitude and an outlook on what really matters. God wants us to succeed. He wants us to have. He wants us not to have not. He wants what's best for you. But more than that, he wants your heart. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your hearts will be. He wants to be the focus of our hearts, for our minds to be on him. He says, no one can serve two masters. You either have to hate one and love the other or vice versa. Jesus wants us to know today that you will have enough because you are already enough because he is more than enough. Now, looking back at verse 22, Jesus is talking about an eye, which when I first read this, I'm like, it's kind of a weird thing to throw in there, Jesus. Like, why are we talking about eyeballs? We're talking about treasures. Um, But when I looked into it, the idea is actually very simple. It's this idea that if our eye, which can detect light, is dark or blurry, then we can't see anything. Now, I am personally blind, so thank God for contacts, but I was in a class once at NIAC where our professor asked anybody in the room to raise their hand if they had any kind of vision loss, and nearly 80 to 90% of the people raised their hand, so I'm going to assume that pretty much everyone in this room knows what it means to have blurred vision. 
So the point is this, when you have blurred or darkened vision, it doesn't matter how much light is in a room, you just can't see it. Tim Keller draws a point on this part of the passage to say that this is to show just how dark greed can be. And greed is defined as this intense, selfish desire. It's this idea of wanting more and needing more. He talks about how in all of his years of pastoring, no one's ever come in to meet with him with a greed issue. And in fact, in another message by Francis Chan, he says it's almost something we joke about, like, hey, look at that kid. He's so greedy, he wants another cookie. We don't realize the intense control that greed can have in our lives. And this is exactly why greed is a major issue, because often we can't see it. Our greed causes us blindness where we're unable to recognize it in our own lives. And Keller kind of jokes on this, and he says there's not really a whole lot of other sins that are like this. For example, if you're struggling with lust, you often know you're struggling with lust, and you're not looking at the person in bed next to you going, gee, you're not my spouse. How did this happen? You're kind of aware that this is the sin. And I believe that if we were all truly honest, we would all say that we're all greedy whether or not we recognize it. Think back to the $50 under the chair. I would want that $50. I'm greedy. Just ask Gabe. I'm greedy. I want more. And just yesterday, and this is a true story, my son, son, Jack, looked at me and said, Mom, you should leave your job and become a doctor so that we can have a bigger house. So we're all greedy. (laughs) Why is it? So why is it that the people of God are greedy? Why is it that often we can say things like, God, I trust you with my car, or I trust you with my spouse, or I trust you with my kids, but we have trouble saying we trust you with our money? Well, Keller says that there's two reasons for this. The first one is because we want significance, and the second reason is because we want security. We want significance because we want people to see what we have and think that we're worth something, and we want security because we think that we have to have a plan A and a plan B and a plan C. And we're often stingy with what we have because of these two reasons, because what if there's not enough for ourselves? And this is exactly what storing up treasures for ourselves looks like. So if you think about people in your life who are stingy and people in your life who are greedy, you can probably guess that people who are generous, um, stingy or generous, sorry, people who are generous are normally happier people. Um, my son, Jack, started kindergarten this year, and in the beginning of the year, um, I was looking at the charges on his lunch account, and I'm seeing all these extra charges for snacks and stuff, and he's, like, buying three or four snacks a day, and I'm like, is the school not watching him? Like, what is happening? And so I asked him about it, and he said he was buying all of his friends' snacks. So even my six-year-old understands that giving feels good. It is good to bless people. The part that I really love about this is that Jack never really worried that he wasn't going to have enough money. And maybe he didn't understand how it worked, but I think that he knew that he had a source. (laughs) He had a source that was faithful, that his mom was faithful to put money in his account so he would have enough money to buy lunch and often more than that, but a snack or two. When we recognize that our money belongs to God anyway, we can just be stewards of that, of that money. When we do this, we can let go of obsessing over how we can get more and have more. I love what David says in the book of First Chronicles. So here's this wealthy king building up a, a temple, and his followers are wholeheartedly and freewillingly giving gifts to the temple. And he says this, But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given to you. So I think at at this point, Jesus is probably thinking what the rest of us are thinking. Like, so what do you mean I shouldn't think about money? How am I going to survive? What about my family? What am I going to wear? And what do you mean it's not mine? What does this mean? 
Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Are, they not of more, are you not of more value than they? Therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we wear? He uses this direct language again. Do not be anxious. Do not be worried about an uncertain outcome. This outcome is certain. So recently I started training for a 5K that I keep forgetting that I signed up for. Awesome. Um, but the other day I was running around Congers Lake, and this is not a lie, I looked up and this most majestic bird flew by me. I'm totally not going to pretend that I know what kind of bird it was, because I don't, but it was beautiful. And I could almost hear this part of the passage. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet they have all that they need. Why are you anxious? Will I not so much more provide for you? This is exactly the issue. Why do I have such little faith when it comes to the provision of the Lord? Why is it that I know that those dang birds are not out in the field like, oh my gosh, what are we going to wear today? And what am I going to eat today? And yet they have all that they need. How much more does my heavenly father care about me? Jesus says, do not be anxious. What does anxiety do for your life? It adds nothing. In fact, it takes away from your life. Set your mind on an outlook that looks to heaven as your treasure and that looks to God as your source. So I, like a lot of moms, I would guess, I never really thought of myself as a worrier until I had kids. And I can really get my mind wrapped around these crazy ideas about my kids. I just worry about them. So I'll give you an example. So the beginning of the year, um, we're getting used to the whole bus routine. And generally, I am rushing to get Jack to the bus stop so that I can make it to work and everybody's on time. Um, and we're standing at the bus stop. We just made it. And he looks at me and he's like, mom, I got to go to the bathroom. And I'm like, okay, bud, you'll be fine. Like you can get on the bus. You can make it there. And he's like, but mom, I got to go number two. And I'm like, okay, really? You'll be fine. Like you can make it there. It's just three minutes down the road. You can totally do this. If you're really nervous, go to the nurse's office. Like you can make it. You can totally do this. So he's like, okay. And he gets on the bus and now I'm worried and I'm envisioning my son on the bus with feces all over him and him being like this smelly kid in class, right? And I'm thinking, not only is this going to affect him today, but this is like what's going to affect him for the rest of his school career. Like now all of a sudden in my mind, I've turned my normal six-year-old into like the smelly kid in class. And I've destroyed his reputation in my mind in a matter of seconds. But this is exactly what worrying does. Worrying does not add anything to the situation. It takes away from what our focus ought to be. He made it to school, by the way. <laughs> but this is exactly the point that Jesus is trying to make through these verses and through the Sermon on the Mount. According to one of the articles that I read, it said, when we store up treasures in heaven, we have a light grip on the material things of this world because we have a greater hope. We learn contentment and independence of all circumstances because these things cannot dictate our lives. We don't waste our time with anxious thoughts about money or about anything because it distracts us from the pursuit of our heavenly treasure. Seeking God's kingdom first is turning to God first, to take on the character of Christ, to pursue him in all areas. So the question is simple. What do you really value? Do you, as Andy Stanley say, trust in the riches of the world, or do you trust in the one who richly provides? When I was praying about what the Lord wanted to say this morning, I couldn't help but go back to this phrase. You have enough because you are enough because he is enough. We can be free when we set our minds on a constant, continual outlook that looks to Jesus as our source and as our treasure. 
The whole passage is about an attitude. It's about an outlook, about setting our sights on Christ and on the kingdom of heaven and on the things that will not fade. Jesus wants us to be free from bondage. He wants us to be free from greed because it can blind us. He wants us to be free from worry because it distracts and takes from us. He wants us to be radically generous with our money, not because it's what we're supposed to do, but because we've come to a place where we recognize that it doesn't belong to us anyway. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a parable about a rich fool. And in this parable, it's about a farmer whose business is booming. He's doing great. So he decides to tear down the barns that he has and build bigger ones and just keep stockpiling and having more and more and more. And Jesus calls this man a fool. He says, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? The whole language here in its original form is actually monetary. This idea of this term demanded is actually a word that's used to describe paying back a loan. So Jesus is saying, what you have is not yours, it's on loan. So what good will be is being greedy and stockpiling yourself? For a long time when I read these passages, I just heard it in an angry tone. Like, come on, what's wrong with you? Why can't you see this? Why don't you get this? But what I realized in studying these passages this week is that these verses are just as much a part of God's love story as the rest of the passages that are easy to read. Jesus is calling us to be generous, not because he wants to take from you, but because he wants you to know that he has already taken responsibility for you. He wants you to know that you will have enough and that you are enough. The really beautiful part about this is that Jesus set his heart on you. He didn't have his heart on an earthly treasure. He had his mindset on us. He was obsessed with knowing us and loving us and for us to in turn love and to know him. This is why he chooses to talk about money, because he knew the hold that it could have on us. He knew that you and I could not fully set our minds on him if we had another treasure in our hearts. Jesus didn't care about any of his worldly possessions. He cared about you. He cared about me. So what Jesus is asking of us today is this. Is he worth more than your stuff? Is he worth it enough to you to be your obsession, to be your outlook, and to be your treasure? You and I are Jesus' treasure. Jesus tells another parable in Matthew. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. You and I are his treasure. He gave all that he had so that he could have us, and he's asking for all of us. Now again, I know it would be really easy to take away from these passages that Jesus wants you to have nothing. He's still calling us to be wise. He's still calling us to be good stewards of the gifts and talents he's given us. He's not asking us to quit our jobs and sit around and meditate on happy thoughts. But what he is asking is that we would fix our hearts on him, that we would fix our minds on him, that we would stop clouding our vision with greedy thoughts, that we would give generously and abundantly because generous people have less bondage. Jesus wants us to know today that we have a father who has taken responsibility for us. We have enough because we are enough because he is enough. So where have you been greedy? What are the areas in your life where you've let anxiety steal from you? In closing, I'm going to call for another offering. I'm totally kidding. That was a joke. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, ser but seriously, <laughs> seriously, we have been very generous at Risen King. You know, last week Mike talked about 
um, giving to kids camp and sponsoring a kids. In a few weeks, we're going to start talking about giving to um, some of our local kids' school supplies. Over the years, we've been able to provide Christmas and Thanksgiving to our local communities. We've been generous here. But Jesus is calling us to be radically generous even when there's not a big event to give to. He wants you to know today that when you stop worrying about working harder, you stop worrying about getting more and being more, and you set your outlook on an an eternal treasure that you can live a joyous and free life. Jesus wants to be the king of your heart. My little son, Gabriel, um, he's a charmer and honestly a lot like Dennis the Menace. Um, And he will often ask for a cookie or an ice cream or some kind of sweet treat or to play outside right before it's time to go to bed. I'm like, okay, nobody, we can't do that right now. And so then he'll follow it up with, well, can I have it tomorrow? And I'm usually like, yeah, buddy, you can have it tomorrow. And his response is always the same. Thanks, Mommy, you're the best. You see, Gabriel's not worried about the cookie or the ice cream, and he's not concerned about wondering what will happen if he doesn't get what he thinks that he needs. He's decided not to make the ice cream or the cookie his treasure. He's decided that coming to me and finding hope for tomorrow his treasure. And honestly, nine times out of ten, we forget what he's asked for, but he knows that I'm going to supply all of his needs according to what I know to be best for him. And this is exactly what Paul says in the book of Philippians. My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. You don't have to be concerned about your situation. This is what Jesus wants you to know that you will always have enough because you are already enough because he is always enough. So as we close this morning, um, I don't know if anybody's here from the prayer team, but if you're here from the prayer team, and maybe some of the staff, maybe if you just want to raise your hands and stay where you're at, that's fine. But if you've sensed this morning that you just need a little bit more time to process, to think through that, yes, I've been greedy. I know I've been greedy. Um, And maybe you just want to talk through it with somebody. We're here to pray with you. And maybe this morning you've realized that, no, I've totally given, but I haven't always been happy about it. Well, this is a morning to draw a line in the sand, to say that I'm going to change my outlook, that I'm going to start looking to heaven and not on the things of this world that will fade away, but I want my focus to be solely on Jesus. We are totally here to pray with you. And perhaps this morning this is the first time that you've heard about Jesus or about what his kingdom actually looks like. We want to pray with you. So I'm just going to close in prayer, and if you need to find somebody to pray with, we're here to do that. Father, I thank you that you are enough. I thank you that you are more than enough. I thank you that you will richly supply all of our needs. I thank you that what we have doesn't belong to us anyway. I thank you that we can release that burden of trying to control and be in charge of what we have. Father, I ask that you would pour out your spirit in this room, God that we would hear your voice and hear what you have to say to us this morning, that we would leave this place with an outlook that looks to you and not on our situation and not on what we have to do to fix our situation, but we can focus solely on you. We can lock eyes with you this morning. I thank you that you have told us that we are enough because you are enough and we will have enough. In Jesus' name, amen.